Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 57, that we will only read from the portions printed on page 8 of your bulletin. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. This is God's word. We've been looking at the uh, life of Joseph. It's one of the best narratives that show us, that teach us, that prove to us that God is active in our suffering. And there's some background. Joseph, if you've been with us the last several weeks, because of his pride and his arrogance, he was sold by his brothers 
And he was brought into the land of Egypt, into the house of Potiphar. And in the house of Potiphar, you know, Potiphar was the commander. He was likely the commander and chief of the armed forces of Egypt, the most powerful empire to date in all the world up until that point. So that means Joseph was brought up into power. He was brought up into power. And uh, because of his management abilities, and he was placed in charge of Potiphar's estate. And just as things were getting better, he's wrongly accused of sexual harassment by Potiphar's wife. And he's thrown into the pit again. Thrown into jail. Much like death row. And that's Joseph. He's favored by his father, Jacob. He ends up in the pit. And then he comes out of the pit. He's favored by Potiphar. And then he ends up in the pit again. He ends up in prison. What's the meaning of this? Why does this happen? The first part of Genesis God is audible. God is visible. He appears before Abraham. He appears before Isaac. He appears before Jacob and Sarah. And he comes in visions. And he comes in miracles. And he, and he encounters his people. <clears throat> but in the life of Jesus, uh, jo- Joseph, there's none of that. The life of Joseph, there's none. In the first part, you know, Abraham asks God, how will I know that your promises are real? And God comes to him. And God appears before him and he speaks to him. But in the life of Joseph, Joseph is in a pit and he's crying out. And there's silence. God doesn't answer. God doesn't answer. And we've been saying that with God, silence is not the absence of God. In fact, silence sometimes speaks more than, than the way God spoke to Abraham and in the life of Isaac. It's, a, it's at least the same. God has chosen in his silence, to still speak to us. And he does this in three ways. And we see that in this passage. God speaks to us in three ways. There are three points. He speaks to us in prison. He speaks to us in dreams. He speaks to us uh, through prisoners, the people we leave for dead, the people that we want to avoid. First, he speaks to us in prison, in the silence of prison. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph is in a pit, and he's crying out. He's crying out. Uh, you know, uh, in his pride and his arrogance, he's crying out for help, um, probably because he's proud and he's arrogant. Um, but this time he's in the pit. This time he's in prison. He doesn't cry out. He's silent. Why is that? And it's because he's being humbled. We said he's being humbled. He's starting to get it. The first time he was in the pit because of his sinfulness, because of his pride. But this time... He went to prison because he did the right thing. And he's starting to get it because in each case he's starting to realize that who he is, what he's done, you know, the favor that he's garnered, it's not enough to carry him through. It's not going to be his rescue. That's what he realizes. No matter what he's done, what he has, what he's accomplished, it's not going to be enough. You know, he garners favor each time. He garners favor from his father. He garners favor from, from uh, Potiphar. But this time around, he's realizing you can't rest in who you are. You can't rest in what you've done. You can't rest in your accomplishment or your pedigree, what you have. What's the most important thing in life? He realizes that God is active in his life. He's active in his life. Sometimes, even though he's silent, he's active even though he hasn't appeared. So it's not about the immediate circumstances. That's what Joseph is starting to realize. And he realizes that that the the resources that we have, our skills, the talents that we have, our wealth, our family, our career path, it's never meant to be our final rescue. It's never meant to be our full rescue. That's what he realizes. 
You know, man was always meant to be dependent. Adam and Eve, when they were created, they thought that they could be independent when they realized that they were utterly dependent on God. We were made to be rescued on one hand, but only by God. And as a result, we're wholly dependent on God himself. Now remember, this passage, this book was written for people who are wandering in the desert after they've escaped, after the exodus from Egypt, to these people, the Jews, the Hebrews, they were in captivity for 400 years and they were wandering in the desert. And this passage spoke to them because even in the desert, when God sometimes is silent, it was to remind them that God, you can't rely on yourself, you can't rely on your resources. God is present even though he's silent. And in the life of Joseph, we see this. God is active in his suffering very active in his weakness, in his pain, in his aloneness, in the oppression. God is present. You know, for over 20 years, Joseph was abandoned by his family. His father thought he was dead. Over 20 years. For 13 years, Joseph was in jail. Do you know, when he was sent to jail, uh, Potiphar's uh, prison, he was in jail for 13 years because by this point, by the time he appears to Pharaoh, It says that he was 30 years old. You know, he was sold to Egypt when he was 17, right? So for 13 years, he is in jail. And two of those years was unwarranted. I mean, it was unwarranted all those years, but two of those years, uh, the cupbearer, if you looked at the previous passages before this chapter, the cupbearer has a dream, and he interprets the dream, and the cupbearer is released from prison. He ends up in the Pharaoh's uh, palace again, but he forgets to tell the Pharaoh about Joseph. And the thing is, I mean, how could he really have forgotten to tell Pharaoh? He either truly is that absent-minded, or he chose to forget. He chose to forget. So, so for two years, it was um, uh, you know, because of the forgetfulness of the cupbearer, And he's seven years away from an economic global depression, a global economic depression, one that's going to wipe out all the abundance of the world. In fact, in verse 57, which is not printed in your bulletins, it says that the famine was severe in all the land, in all the world. In fact, all the world came to Egypt because Egypt was the one country that was ready for the famine. It's an amazing passage, what's going on here. And all this time, everything is about to go wrong. God is silent. He is not mentioned once. He doesn't speak once. He doesn't appear once before Joseph. He doesn't speak. He doesn't show visions, not one miracle, not one encounter with Joseph. And yet Joseph, in his wisdom, he's getting humble. He's becoming humbled. He's starting to finally see that in his suffering, God is still present. He's starting to get it. Rescue comes only from God, a redeemer, one that we often forget. We tend to trust in other things. There's a story about a couple, it's just really an anecdotal story, who, who graduated from one of the top universities in the world and they come before their parents and they say, you know, throughout our college years, we've become Christians. And, um, you know, they have these great jobs with great salaries and, and they say, you know, we, we've become Christians. And we decided to put aside our salary, put aside our career for now. We're going to go away on long-term missions for a while. And the parents say, this is absurd. This is crazy. You guys just work so hard. We invested all this money so that you would have this great career. How about this? Let's make a deal. Why don't you just work for a while, build up enough funds, build up a reserve, and then you can go off the missions. How about that? If you really want to do that afterwards. And their response, you know, again, this is an anecdotal story, but their response, they said, you know, uh, mom and dad, we... 
we are on a ball of rock that's hurtling through space. You know that? At any point in time, this thing can explode. It can go. And the thing is, one day, even if that doesn't happen, one day the rug will be pulled from under us and the, the, the earth will open up and swallow everything in its path. What, if, what are you going to do? Are you going to hold on to your salary? Is that what you're going to cling to to rescue you? What do you have to rescue you? We tend to trust in things like our salary or our pedigree, our family, you know, the love of our spouse, our connections. That's what we tend to trust in. We think if I just have those things, if I just have, if I just keep this title, maintain this position, and we invest a lot of hard work and time and labor and emotional strength and emotional energy and all these things. But one day the earth is going to open up and it's going to swallow everything. We forget about the only one who can rescue us, the one who can sit above all these things and look out, and he knows the entire scope. He's present. Like the cupbearer, we tend to forget. We tend to forget who redeemed us. We choose to forget. Like him, we often forget our Redeemer, the one who really, who really saves us. Here's Joseph. He's in prison. He's starting to get it. And God, he's starting to realize God is actually speaking to him, even in his silence. He's there. He's speaking even when he seems silent. He's in prison. Now, the second point is that God speaks to us in our dreams. We have to talk about Pharaoh's dreams. There are two dreams, the cows, and we're going to go into this a little bit later, but we got the cows and we have these heads of grain. And, but you know, with respect to these dreams, Pharaoh wakes up and it says that he's troubled. In your call to worship, in Psalm chapter 77, in those first two verses, there's that word distress. The psalmist Asaph says, I'm calling out in my distress. That's the word that's being used in this passage. In the, the Pharaoh wakes up and he's distressed. And this is going to teach us two things about how God reaches out to us. One, it teaches us who he reaches out to. And secondly, it shows us how he speaks to us. First, who? He speaks to Pharaoh. Now, you've got to think about this the way a Hebrew would hear this. The, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they were in captivity for 400 years and they're now wandering, they're wandering, they're wandering through the desert, and they're hearing about, you know, in this passage, they're hearing about a former dictator of the country that they just escaped from. And this dictator woke up from a dream. God has spoken to him, he says. And, and he reaches out to a preacher. He reaches out to a teacher. And the teacher explains to him and validates that God is speaking to him. Would you believe him? Who could believe that? He says, you'd say, no way. This, this is impossible. You wouldn't believe that. Why? Because we are all conditioned to believe that God only reveals himself to good people. We're all conditioned to believe that if I live a good life, God is going to speak to me. God will come to me. God will answer me. But here, God reveals himself to Pharaoh. Joseph has been in jail for 13 years. God doesn't appear once to him. But Pharaoh, he comes before Pharaoh. He isn't silent to Pharaoh. He speaks to Pharaoh. You know, God reveals himself to Abraham. God reveals himself to Isaac. God reveals himself to Sarah. God reveals himself to Jacob, even Jacob. But to Pharaoh. We get the other ones, but to Pharaoh, that, that, that's confusing. That doesn't make sense. But here Pharaoh has a vision. Joseph is in slavery, he's, he's wrongly accused, but God chooses to meet with Pharaoh. And, uh, and, and this is going to teach us a little bit about the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says only the obedient see God. 
Only the obedient can come to God. Only the good people are blessed. And if Joseph believed that, then what would have come out of prison would have been a man who is absolutely resentful and bitter because God did not answer him. God owes him because of all the things that he had done. He had done good things. He had done good things for his family. He had done good things for Potiphar. And he deserves God to be, to be near him, to answer him. And he would be resentful and bitter, but he doesn't do that. You don't see that here. Joseph was not bitter. Grace teaches us, the gospel teaches us, not that only the obedient see God. The gospel teaches us that only the weak see God. Only the humble see God. God only comes to the weak. Joseph is suffering, but in his weakness, he's actually growing confidence. He's, he's not arrogant, no longer proud. You'll see that in this passage. But he's growing confident. He's growing bold. It's a very, very renewed boldness. It comes with humility. They go hand in hand. Only the gospel can merge humility, tremendous humility and boldness, brings it together. He's become so dependent on God, and that's made him indestructible. The Christian says, my life is not my own. It's dependent wholly on grace. And as a result, if you really believe that, then nothing can destroy you because the ultimate punishment, the ultimate, the ultimate, the pit, the ultimate pit has been, has been washed away from you, has been, has been eroded away from you. And if you really believe that, that gives you tremendous confidence. But if you really, really believe that, then you know that it's offered to anybody. And here it's offered to Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, even though he's the most powerful man in the world to date, he's incredibly weak. He doesn't acknowledge God. He doesn't know God. And how do you know this? Because he wakes up from these dreams. These dreams are getting him. And, and what are the dreams about? Basically, the dreams are about him losing his kingdom. He's about to lose the things that he holds dear. In other words, these dreams are becoming a nightmare for Pharaoh. What's your nightmare? What are the things in your life that you say, you know, if I lose these things, then life is not worth living. I've lost my kingdom. What are the things in your life that you say, you know, if I lose this thing, my worth, my self-worth, my identity, all these things are gone. It becomes a famine for you. The Pharaoh wakes up to a famine, and he's just absolutely distressed. But God, in his grace, reveals himself to Pharaoh. And, and you know that he's humble. Why? Because he chooses to listen to a prisoner, somebody on death row for counsel. He's lowering himself. If God can use Pharaoh, Pharaoh is the most powerful person in the world to date. He doesn't acknowledge God. He doesn't know God. He doesn't worship God. But if God can use Pharaoh to save, to, to basically um, shape the history of the world, then he can use anybody. He can use us. He can use you. He can use anybody. That's to whom? How does he speak to us? It's these dreams. What are the dreams? These seven cows are grazing on the bank of the Nile. They're fat. They're happy, well-fed, abundant. And then these seven other cows that are thin and frail come out. Now, it's not uncommon for cows to be grazing on the bank of the Nile because the Nile was the most fertile area in the world at the time. Very, the Nile Delta is one of the most fertile areas in the world. And so these cows grazing in these fertile lands, not uncommon, but these thin cows devour these fat cows and they remain thin. That's the dream. That's the nightmare. Dream turned nightmare. In other words, these herbivores, cows are, they eat grass. These herbivores all of a sudden become carnivores. 
This dream has become a nightmare. And, and he knows when he wakes up, it has, he's wealthy and he's powerful. In other words, he's the pleasant. He's the abundant. He's the healthy. He's the plentiful. And he's relying on this and it's making him insecure. And he wakes up and he's distressed and he's troubled. And he, sees, he talks about this other dream he has because he goes back to sleep and he has another dream and it's the same dream. This stalk of grain has these seven ears, these buds of grain attached to it. And it's beautiful and it's abundant because it represents who he is. But then again, behold, there are another seven ears of grain that, are, that have been basically bleached by the east wind. And it comes and devours these abundant buds of grain and yet remains thin and withered. And he's troubled. It just distresses him. God is revealing to Pharaoh himself in his trouble, in his suffering, He says, you know, you have plenty, you have a lot. But he's revealing to himself his deepest weakness, his deepest insecurity, the thought, the nightmare. Losing it all. Losing it all would be the end of the world for him. Every so often, God brings to us a nightmare. You know what a nightmare is? You know, you wake up and you're distressed, you're quaking, a quake. Your soul is quaking, it shakes you to your foundations. And I'm not, obviously, I'm talking metaphorically because, you know, although nightmares can sometimes keep you up, I'm talking about the soulful nightmares that we all have. Everybody here in the room has a soulful nightmare, something that if you lose, it would be the end of the world for you. And what God is doing is, it's, it's a paradigm bomb. He's dropping a paradigm bomb in our lives. What's a paradigm? A paradigm is a core value, a core belief, something that you hold, that you believe uh, is, is essential to your understanding of the world. But what he does, he tests the strength of those paradigms, the things that you place your hope in, the things that you rely in. And, and he blows away what we thought about God. He blows away what we think about ourselves. In other words, we realize through our paradigm bombs, these nightmares that we have, we realize how much we, we overestimate ourselves, we realize how vulnerable we are, and how much we underestimate the power of God working in our lives, in our circumstances. That's what we realize. That's what suffering does. It makes us rethink our lives. It makes us rethink everything. You know, Matthew 16, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples. What does he say? He says, what good will it be if a man gains the whole world yet loses his soul? What is the price of a man's soul, he says? What's the price of a man's soul? In other words, what he's saying here is that if you, if you have placed your worth and your value and your, your whole, the foundation of your being rests on your accomplishments or your pedigree or your salary, you know, these things that we pursue and we work and we labor and labor and labor, we finally get there, but then you lose it. That's the nightmare. You lose it all. If you, if you pin your hopes on a salary, what happens if you lose your salary? That's the nightmare. It's going to shake you to your core. It's going to make you quake. It's going to ruin you. It's going to devastate you. That's what quakes do. They devastate your soul. That's what's happening. And these, these uh, paradigm bonds, these nightmares, they remind us that at that moment, we're acting. We think we're God. We think we're God. But in reality, the trauma, we experience tremendous trauma because of the mistake that we're making. We've overestimated ourselves. And yet God does this. Why does God bring trauma into our lives? And a lot of us, we go through a tremendous you know, amount of suffering. And as we do that, I don't want to diminish the suffering that some of us experience. But over time, 
I mean, it took Joseph 13 years. It wasn't overnight. Over time, in God's grace, we can start to see. We can start to see that. And we realize that the trauma is there. God is doing that. He ruins you, but ultimately to remake you, to rebuild you, to save you, to rescue you, to feed you in the famine. God speaks. <clears throat> God speaks in his silence. God speaks in our nightmares, in our dreams. But lastly, he speaks through the people that we leave for dead, the people that we avoid. We have locked away certain people in the prison of our souls and our minds. We say, you know, I want nothing to do with these people. We've condemned them to prison. And God speaks through these people, through the counsel of other people. We need deep community. Deep community, you know, genuine community, we're going to learn, is intentional. Genuine community is intentional. It's not natural. It's a supernatural thing. And, and, and you're going to see this as this passage kind of unravels. Pharaoh, what does he do? He seeks the people around him, the people who are like him. He's an intelligent man. He's a wise man. He seeks the intelligent. He seeks the magicians. Magicians have the supernatural quality about them. He seeks the intelligent. They're the natural quality about them. He brings them together, and he, and he tells them, and they can't figure it out. They don't get it. They can't help him. At their best, they, at their best, they can't get God without, without God's own help. So, you know, and, and, and they're struggling with that. And so, uh, you know, Pharaoh himself, he's intelligent. Pharaoh is wise. You know, but he can't figure God out as well. And, you know, this reminds me of a passage in, in the book of John, the Gospel according to John. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says, no one comes to me, no one comes to the Son, except that the Father who sent me draws him. That's what he says. You know, Jesus, in other words, what he's saying to his disciples, he says, do you know how blessed you really are? Do you, know, do you realize how blessed you are? I am actually here. I'm present in your life, in the flesh. I'm revealing myself to you. Where is your sense of wonder? Where is your sense of awe? God has chosen to reveal himself to you. And he says, you know, if you've chosen to follow me, it's because God has chosen to draw you. You know, and no, one comes to the, no one comes to me, no one comes to the Son, except the Father who sent me draws him. And that word, that Greek word draws, it's not like, um, it's, it's not, some people say it's like when you, when you lower a bucket in a well and you're pulling that bucket into deep waters. It's not like that kind of word. It's actually, the word draw is actually a prisoner, a fugitive. We've learned a lot about fugitives this week, right? A fugitive who's running away and you've lassoed him and you're pulling at him. No one comes to me lest the Father draws him. That's what he says. God has to reveal himself. The Pharaoh doesn't get it. And then the cupbearer remembers. There's a man that I know, a Hebrew slave, who used to work for Potiphar, a servant, who's in the pit. He was in the pit with me. And he interpreted my dream and the baker's dream. And he knew that the baker was going to die and that I would be released. And it happened exactly as he said. And so here's Joseph now. Remember Forrest Gump? You know, he says, then I went to the White House again and I saw the president again. It happens over and over and over for Joseph. That's what's going on. He gets, he's clean shaven, he's cleaned up, 
he appears before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, he considers himself a god. He's considered a god in his country. But he calls for Joseph a prisoner for counsel. The king calls for the enemy. The, the politician is calling for the prisoner for help. It's an amazing thing. He's low, we said this before. He's lowering himself. And Joseph, his words are not, they're not fun words. He doesn't placate the Pharaoh. They're startling words. You know, Joseph, he could have been bitter. He could have been resistant. He could have been self-seeking. He could have said, well, first of all, I'm not going to do anything. I've been in this jail for 13 years. You didn't even give me a trial. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you know, that cupbearer, it took two years for him to remember this. You know, I have a couple demands of my own, and one of them is to pay retribution, you know, against that cupbearer. He doesn't do that. We said he's being humbled. He's ready. In his humility and in his confidence, he appears before the Pharaoh, and his words are startling. But he begins with, you know, five words in the, in the version of the Bible that we're reading right now. Five words. He says, it is not in me. It's actually one word in Hebrew. You know that? Five words in, in the English language. It is not in me to interpret this, he says. In Hebrew, it's one word. Can't. That's probably the best way to interpret it. He says, can't. But God will do this for you. He's being humble. Do you see the humility? Look at the humility. And, and, and um, Potiphar's wife says two words. We, the efficiency of Potiphar's wife, two words when he was advancing towards Joseph sexually. Remember that in, last week? He says, you know, it's something like sex now, right? But Joseph, even more efficient. One word. He says, can. Can. Potiphar's w- wife, demonstration of power. Joseph, demonstration of weakness. He's becoming sensitive to God's work, his active work in his life. And he realizes here that God has used him to bless others. He's using his skills to bless other people. He says, I can't, but God can. God can. He's mixing a combination of faith and humility, and it's making him think of himself less. There's no more ego. There's no more pride. There's no more arrogance. Joseph is about to ascend to the highest place. He's already standing before the highest person, the most powerful person in all the world. And he says, I can't do this. But God can. And that's the key to salvation. Verses 25 to 32. This is what he says. He interprets the dream. He says, you have plenty. God has shown you more than you could ever dream of. God has shown you so much abundance and you're going to have that abundance for seven years and then the famine's going to come. Remember, the dark night rises, there's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. He says there's a storm coming, there's a famine that's going to come, all the abundance is going to be forgotten. In fact, that famine is going to swallow up all the abundance that you could ever remember. There will be no more memory of the day when you had everything. That's what he says. So rightly so, he should be disturbed. And then he starts to counsel Pharaoh. He goes beyond himself. Verse 33 to 36, he says, here's what you should do. Can you imagine this? This prisoner who comes to interpret the dream and he says, now, this is what you should be doing. You need to appoint a commissioner. You need to collect the food over the course of time for these next seven years. I want you to collect food in abundance and I want you to store it away. Store it away, reserved for the famine and your country will not be ruined. That's pretty much what he says. 
Where's the audacity? He goes beyond what the Pharaoh asks. He could have cowered. He could have just said, well, here's the dream. You know, here's the interpretation. He could have just told the Pharaoh what he wanted to hear. He could have lied. He could have done a lot of things. But instead, he makes himself available. And not only does he interpret the dream, he actually gives him counsel. He actually uses his skills to bless. Remember, he has tremendous managerial skill, Joseph. He uses his skill to bless the Pharaoh, a person who doesn't acknowledge God, a a person who doesn't know God, a person who doesn't worship God. Tremendous boldness, tremendous humility, all at the same time. Do you see that? And his prescription is interesting. He doesn't say, do nothing. He doesn't say, do everything. He doesn't say, you know, God is in control, do nothing. He doesn't say, God is not in control, So you've got to do everything. He says, God is king. And he has placed you in charge. Be responsible. That's what he says. God has placed us in positions of power, in positions of of, uh, ability. He's given all of us skills. He's given all of us amazing gifts. We've only been here for six months, and we see everybody in this congregation is gifted. There is no doubt. Tremendously gifted, tremendously educated, tremendously knowledgeable, tremendously wise. But he says, live responsibly. Use it to bless other people. Live responsibility, with responsibility. And the Pharaoh, he's discerning and he's wise. He says, verses 37 to 38, he realizes this man is amazing. And all the way through verse 46, what does he say? This person is going to become the prime minister of my kingdom, the prime minister of Egypt. He literally goes from the favor of his dad into the pit. And then he gets promoted to the, the assistant, the attendant to the captain of the guard, and then he's in the pit. <laughs> and now he's at the prime minister position in Egypt. It's an amazing narrative And we need to learn from this. Look at what the Pharaoh is doing here. He's taking, he's calling on somebody who's completely different from him. You know, the Pharaoh is powerful. The the Pharaoh is wealthy. He's educated. And he's an Egyptian. The Egyptian, they're a pluralistic society. They have many, many gods. And clearly here, he had many functional gods in his life. He had his power, and he had his wealth, and he had his intelligence, and his wisdom. These, These things were his functional gods. But he calls on Joseph. Joseph is not Egyptian. He's Hebrew. He's not pluralistic. He has one God. Joseph is a a prisoner and a slave. He has no power. He's utterly weak. He is not wealthy. And yet the Pharaoh brings him in and he says, you will take charge over my entire kingdom. The prime minister position is the one who executes all power. And that's why at the end he says, you know, that that last verse printed in your bulletins, he says, whatever he says you should do, do, that's what he can do. He gives him command over all of of Egypt. Incredible power. He has ascended to the heights. We need deep community in our lives to help us interpret our nightmares. That's basically what it is. What makes Pharaoh, you know, this man who is considered equal with God, What makes him consider the need for a redeemer? It was his nightmare. It was his loss, the threat of loss. And so what does he do? He he tries to go to people who are just like him, and it wasn't enough. We need people in our lives who are utterly different from us. They're different in ideology. They're different in politics. 
They're different in pedigree, different in race, different in language, different in profession, in educational status and background, in wealth, in social economic status. We need people who are so utterly different from us in our lives, speaking into us. But remember, the Pharaoh calls on Joseph not because he was just different. That would have sealed his fate. He calls on Joseph because of his wisdom. He knew the Lord. He had power from God. And we need to seek people who are completely different from us, who can give us a perspective because collectively, you know, God himself is community. God is community. Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And because of that, the best way to understand and come to know God is how? Through intimate, deep relationships, through community. It's not enough then, you know, if you're just worshiping and doing quiet time and reading the Bible and praying on your own, you will have a certain dimension and an extent of your knowledge of God, but it's not enough. You need deep community. Those things are necessary, but insufficient. You need deep community. So if you're not plugged in, you know, with other believers around you who are sometimes different from you, who sometimes may annoy you, who sometimes you want to avoid because they're so different from you, You need to get connected. You need to get to know them. Why? Because they will possess together. You will have an understanding of the many different dimensions of who God is. That's why we need deep community. Genuine community. You know, D.A. Carson um, says that the church is made of natural enemies. What he really means by that is this. He's, what he's saying is that, you know, if I wasn't a believer, there's no way. I'm just saying, not he says, I'm saying this. If I wasn't a believer, most of you would probably not be my friends. I would not even know you. Most of you would not be. We're just too different. I would be around a very small circle of friends because I'm a natural introvert. And I would be hanging out with people who are probably more like me. You know, who read books that I read, who watch movies that I watch, I watch a lot of movies, who listens to the same kind of music that I listen to, you know, probably in my working world, you know, who kind of understands what I do. And that's what I would do. That's who I would hang with. But D.A. Carson says the church is then full of natural enemies, people who would naturally never associate themselves with one another. But we come together. Genuine community is intentional, and it's supernatural. It's supernatural. We come and we share our nightmares, the things that we believe will ruin us. And and we allow people to speak into that. You know, if you normally do that, if you come and sit with, you know, seven or eight strangers and you start to share about your life and they start to speak into your life and say, well, here, you know, here's some, you would take them, you'd be offended by that. But the Lord opens us up to be able to speak into one another and to hear one another. That's an amazing thing. It's a supernatural quality uh, of deep community in Christ. And only believers experience that. Uh, and, and we see that. Genuine community speaks to us in a way that we can come before a, re- a, real, a real genuine, a true redeemer, our rescuer, somebody that we've imprisoned, somebody that was ultimately majestic, more powerful than the Pharaoh, more powerful than Joseph could ever be. Yet he humbled himself. He lowered himself and became weak. Somebody who did absolutely no wrong. Joseph, he did no wrong. He ended up in the pit for 13 years, but Jesus did absolutely, he was the most perfect person that ever walked the earth. And he was falsely accused. And he was arrested and he was crucified on the cross. He suffered as a criminal would suffer. We need to have a greater Joseph. Somebody, you know, the Pharaoh, he thought he was God. 
He was king who thought he was God, but, but he needed Joseph to show how vulnerable he was. We need to see that God became cosmically vulnerable by sending his son so that we can become strong. So we can become strong. Jesus says, you can't, but I did. You can't, but I did. He lowered himself. On the cross, Jesus experienced an earthquake. There was an earthquake at the crucifixion. The ground shook, it said. The holy temple curtain tore from top to bottom. The temple shook. Jesus is experiencing an earthquake. And and when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this. This, you know, the earthly earthquake, we can endure. But this, I cannot endure. This is the true quake, the real quake. I'm experiencing right now a cosmic quake, a soulful quake. And I'm disturbed and I'm troubled. I'm distressed because I'm calling out for help. And there's absolute science. That's what he's saying. There's no relief. You know, the Pharaoh, he thought he was God. He thought he was God, but then his dream turns into a nightmare and he's totally distressed when he wakes up, but then he finds relief. But Jesus, the ultimate king, the ultimate God, his dream of seeing his people redeemed and renewed, that's what brought him satisfaction. What caused him to experience the ultimate nightmare on the cross And there's no relief. He says, my God has abandoned me. Jesus suffers the ultimate nightmare, the ultimate quake. He says, my God has abandoned me. I'm troubled. There's no relief. He says, I am king. I am God. I'm greater than Pharaoh. But my nightmare has become a reality. And I'm suffering now the loss of God, the ultimate famine. I'm suffering the cosmic famine, the famine of famines, the loss of God for my life, which means that my world now has come completely undone. The economic downturn, the global downturn has been wrought on my soul. And I'm thirsty. That's what he says. He says, I thirst. He's hungering for God. He's crying out for God. He's suffering the ultimate quaking. It quakes him to the core and it ruined him. And, and you know, you were seeing the person with ultimate power becoming the ultimate prisoner on the cross. And why? He does it for you. He does it for you. He suffered the ultimate famine for you in his soul for you that's an amazing thing the Pharaoh's dream the weak is going to devour the strong the weak will consume the strong that's Jesus on the cross the weak he says zeal for my house will consume me that's what he says and he did it for us the people that he loves you know our greatest trauma is the truth that we're vulnerable. You know, I'm heading into my 40th year of life, and something about turning 40, you start to think about your, your vulnerabilities. You know, I never used to do that, but I'm starting to do that. You know, every time I bump into people who are studying medicine, people who are, who are doc- you know, my doctor is actually a, a f- personal friend of mine, and I ask him, you know, and I was even asking my wife this morning, you know, at what age do you think life really starts to slow down because you can't move faster. You know, hopefully it's not in your 40s. You know, and, um, you know, when you see that Jesus became vulnerable, you know, he became vulnerable. He emptied himself. That's going to give you courage because he did it for you. That's going to give you true courage. You're going to have courage in your vulnerability. 
when it seems like he's completely absent, you know that he's present. He, he's so present. He, had, he lowered himself all the way. And he surely if he lowered himself all the way to the pit, he's there. He's there for you. In fact, he went into the pit so that we can come out of the pit. He's present. And that's going to give you amazing courage. Courage to speak truth and courage to receive truth. You know, when, you, when the gospel is not in your life, you can have the courage to speak truth, but you won't have courage to receive it then. You know, you can be bold, but you can't be humble. If the gospel come, doesn't come into your life, you can sometimes receive truth, but then you'll be too afraid to give it. Either way, you're a coward. You're a coward, and it's going to make you resentful at times and fearful at times. You can either receive truth or you can, you can give truth, but you can't do both. But when the gospel comes into your life, you, can, you will have the courage to be able to speak into the people that you love. You can bless other people. And you'll also be able to receive truth. People can speak into you. And you'll listen. That's how you know. It's one of the marks of, of knowing that you're becoming transformed because you can hear the church is made of natural enemies. You are starting to let people in. You will have the courage to do that. Deep community, genuine community. The Pharaoh says to Joseph, you can take charge over my entire kingdom. That's intimacy. Tremendous, you really have to know somebody to be able to do that. Tremendous intimacy. What he's saying is, I want to know you. I want to know, I want to work with you, I want to serve with you, I want to know you. That's what we're saying. Genuine community. We often wonder, you know, what kind of life, you know, we're living. There's probably some passage in Lord of the Rings that says that, you know, I think, I think um, Samwise says to Frodo, you know, um, I wonder, I, I can't, I'm not quoting it well here, but he says something like, I, and I don't know if it was in the movie, but he says, I wonder what kind of tale we're in. Do you guys remember that passage, that part in Lord of the Rings? I wonder what kind of life we're living uh, because we suffer. All of us suffer. And some of us are suffering immensely. We've either been through tremendous suffering or we, we are in the process or we're heading into that kind of downturn in our lives. But you know what? When, when suffering comes into our lives, we know our resources, what we have, your titles, your education, it means nothing. There's no intelligence in the world that can relieve your true deep sufferings in life. It's inevitable. But God is so gracious and so loving and so compassionate. He's revealing himself there. You know, it's tremendous wisdom. If you can be sensitive to that, to know where you're vulnerable. You know, and I'm not just talking about vulnerable exterior. I'm talking about interior, the insecurities, the deep fears. That's why you can be, you know, Christians throughout history have been able to say, you can mock me, you can hurt me, you can demote me, you can fire me, you can relieve me, you can execute me, you can persecute me, but you will only remake me. You will only renew me. You will only complete me. Through your nightmares, God will speak. And he's going to show us how inadequate we are. Let those times be moments where he's drawing you to the Savior, to Jesus. Let, him, let us see who he is, his wisdom. He sits and he sees all. He, he's present. So instead of being quick to praying for relief, 
Let's pray for wisdom to be able to see, to be able to be sensitive. And let's, and let's trust in the Redeemer this week. Let's trust in who Jesus is and what he did. Let that be your courage. Let that be your courage in your vulnerability. Let that be your courage in your weakness. But let it also be your courage when you're speaking truth and when you're receiving truth. It's the hardest thing to do, to receive truth from the people who are most intimate to you. Let's pray for that courage throughout our days. That's wisdom, tremendous wisdom. Let's pray.